you guys, I was listening to that last song, and it was just super emotional, just the phrases that we were singing. I mean, I'm going to build my life on your love. Isn't that what you want? If someone was to look at you and, and maybe they're talking about you at your funeral, wouldn't that be an amazing thing for them to say about you? They built their life on the love of Jesus. And this concept of no matter what happens, I'm going to trust in your love and I'm not going to be shaken. All of these themes are going to be playing out today in the, in the story in the Bible that we're looking at. And then this amazing picture of Jesus, holy. There is no one like you. There is none besides you. Open up my eyes in wonder and fill me. Fill me with your glory and lead me. Lead me in your love to those around me. This is the exact stuff of the passage today. And so um, we started in John 13 last week. Todd brought us into this series, and there's a verse, John 13, 1, that is really the lens through everything that we're going to be looking at for the rest of the book of John. And it says this, and you, if, if you haven't already written it down or highlighted it or underlined it, it says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his own to the end. That is the lens through which we're looking at everything in this series. And then right after that, at the end of this, this amazing scene where, where Jesus gets down on his knees and he dresses himself as a servant and he washes his disciples' feet. Right after that, it's very clear that he expects us, he expects them to have the same posture towards one another. Because he says this in verse 15, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then one verse later, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed if you live this way towards one another. And so that's where we left off last week. And so I, I want to share with you, this is incredible that Jesus really does expect his disciples, his followers, to follow his example. And so he says that, it, with that, I expect you to do this for one another, and he's going to say that again today. And so he is laying this out. And I, what I want to encourage you is as we walk through this story, we should be asking ourselves, what does Jesus want me to know and to do based on what I'm hearing from his word today? What does he want me personally to know and to do? And so let me just pray about that as we get started. Heavenly Father, we have this treasure in your word, this truth that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, this truth that transforms the way that we see you and we see the world and we see each other, that, that ought to transform the way that we live. And so, God, we pray that you would, you would 
open our eyes to not only what your word is saying, but what it's saying to us. And bring about your purposes in our lives today through your word. Help me to teach it well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're picking up right after he says you're going to be blessed if you do these things, all right? Verse 18, chapter 13, verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But this is to fill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Wow. Things just took a real shift. Can you imagine how intimate, how mind-blown they were at this amazing experience they just had? They were in the middle of supper. This was the Passover meal with Jesus in an upper room. Just the disciples gathered together, intimate, beautiful moment, and Jesus washes their feet. It's, it's got to be one of those significant moments, and then, bam, he drops this bomb into their conversation. One of you is going to betray me. Whoa. And he uses a psalm to do that, and that psalm is Psalm 41. Verse 9, he, it says this. This is a psalm of David. It's a lament, right? This is not good. And David's pouring out his heart to God. And he says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Let's think about that for a moment. Think about the shared experience of the, this group gathered together in the upper room. You guys, they were friends. Jesus called them friends, and he's going to call them friends again later on as we continue in, uh, in John 15. But think about what they experienced, and think about not, not only Judas, but all of them. They had seen Jesus heal sick people. And the disabled, they'd seen him even raise the dead. He'd hurt Jesus not only in the crowds, but, but reveal very significant truths and, and, and challenging truths about who he is and who God is and what his plan is. He'd seen person after person attempt to catch Jesus, and they never did. But Jesus was always gracious and loving. He'd seen him interact with so many people like that. He'd experienced Jesus' power over creation. God, uh, Jesus had saved them out of the storm, right? He'd seen God perform many miracles. He'd seen, he'd been sent out with the others to actually share that news 
right? When Jesus sent out the 70. And yet somehow he'd never believed. And so he was willing to walk away. And that's what Jesus is saying, is one of you is going to betray me. And so you can imagine, this was shocking to the group of disciples. They had no suspicion of who it was. So Judas had gone along and done all of these things with complete sincerity and believability, right? But what's more wild is that Jesus had just washed Judas's feet. He knew that. In fact, he probably, we, I can only imagine, Jesus knew it all along. Even when he chose Judas, he knew that Judas would betray him. And yet he loved him. He served him. He taught him. It, Judas got the same treatment as any other one of his disciples all the way to the end. He loved him to the end. It seems that John wanted us to see this, so he, he went out of his way to let us know that Jesus knew this even before he washed his feet. It said that. Jesus knew that, that this was going to happen. And we can see that Jesus was also deeply troubled over this news that he was about to share. This was not good news. This was troubling news for Jesus to share. Have you ever been betrayed? If you've been betrayed before, you know that this stings in a different way because it is always by someone you've trusted, by a friend, by a spouse. Betrayal is painful. And yet the Bible tells us in Hebrews that our Lord has experienced everything just as we are, we have, but without sin says he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so the hardest things that have happened to you and me in our lives, we know that our Lord understands and has felt those same hurts and emotions. Isn't that amazing about him? And so when, when Jesus is troubled, there's this sense of, of just knowing what this is going to feel like. But I can't help but wonder if Jesus was also troubled. And maybe this was the bigger thing. You see, because when I'm betrayed and sinned against, it takes me a long time to stop focusing on my hurt. And that's human nature. I'm not, that's not a, a wrong thing, but you have to get beyond that point. And I would imagine that, that our sinfulness in betrayal comes because we become self-focused. I'm going to get even. I, I'm, I'm angry and I'm hating this person for betraying me. That's what never occurred to Jesus, right? He never sinned, but he could feel that emotion. So why was he troubled? Well, I think it's because this was the end of his relationship with Judas, and he loved him. You see, betrayal separates friends and it severs relationships. 
oh, by the grace of God, I have seen betrayal be reconciled. You see, we have the cross of Jesus. I've seen it in marriages. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And yet in this situation, Jesus knows this is the end. Judas is going to go through with this betrayal. The very thing that Jesus came in love to give Judas, which was a reconciled relationship to God, eternal life forever, because of Judas's unbelief, was not going to happen. And that meant that he would be separated forever. And I think that's what troubled Jesus more than anything, because he loved Judas. But why did Jesus choose to tell his disciples this? Why did he choose to drop this bomb right in the middle of this precious, tender, intimate time? It's yet another reason, he says, to believe that I am who I am. That's what he said. He was completely in control, completely sovereign over what was going on. And he wanted them to know that, so he gave them the heads up that it's going to happen. And the Bible says, and Jesus says, he wanted them to know this so that they would believe that he was who he said he was. This phrase in verse 19 is another I am statement. In the Greek, it simply says, I want you to believe that I am. Just like all of these statements that we've had up to this point, I am. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. He just says, I want you to believe that I am. And so there's a definite reference here to the, to the name of God himself, Yahweh. There is a, a divine claim. And so we have this amazing, uh, this amazing juxtaposition of Jesus sympathizing with our weakness, feeling the pain, the human pain of betrayal, and yet Jesus, Yahweh, the I am in charge of the situation every step of the way. The disciples were shocked about this news of a pending betrayal. And so let's pick up at verse 22 and see how they respond to it. In verse 22, it says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him who he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus took, as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. 
Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. There's this interesting interchange between Peter and John. You see, John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that amazing? And it was at this point where that title, he revealed this title for himself from this point forward. The, the experience with Jesus going to the cross and through the resurrection was so significant. It, it was so wrapped up in love that John decided, that's what I'm going to call myself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But rather than use his own name, he used this, and would, wouldn't it be true of every one of us that we are the disciple whom Jesus loved? I don't think it bothered the rest of the disciples because they realized, nope, John's just saying the truth that we all believe. Not one of us would be incorrect because it is so true that God so loved not just the world, that he loved you. He loves you. He loves me. So John refers to himself this way, and Peter knows that he's sitting next to John. These, the disciples were re probably reclining on the floor. They didn't probably have table and chairs. That wasn't the culture. They could just kind of sit around on the floor, and obviously Peter was not right next to Jesus, but John was. And so Peter kind of wanted to know. Peter was like that, wasn't he? It's like, I, I want to know the in, inside on this. But isn't it interesting that Ju Judas, Jesus doesn't just throw Judas under the bus? He does it quietly, lovingly. He does reveal to John who it is. Because I think Jesus knew John was writing the book. But Jesus was even gentle with Judas in this moment. It's amazing. But here's another thing that you don't want to miss. This is spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. The enemy is making his biggest move. This is it. This is what he's been gunning for all along. Kill Messiah Jesus. And so we see Satan literally entering Peter, uh, sorry, entering Judas to make him do what he's going to do. And earlier, actually, in this passage, in verse 2, says the devil convinced Judas to betray Jesus. Judas was not a believer, and so he had opened himself up to the devil messing with him in this way. So this is spiritual warfare. Satan thinks he's got it all under control, but who is controlling the whole situation? Who told him, whatever, you, go do it quickly? Jesus. And so even though Satan has this sense of he's making things happen, Jesus is in control of that. He is the I am. 
we know the amazing twist in the story. It's no secret to us. The very thing that Satan thought was going to take Jesus down didn't hold him down. And he rose from the dead. And in the words of a song we've sung here, the cross meant to kill is my victory. Jesus won. You see, Jesus is in control of how it's going to go. He dismisses Judas so he can spend this time now, this intimate time explaining to his disciples the most important things. So after the foot washing, after the meal, is now where Judas goes out. Now here's the cool thing, is Jesus is directing traffic all the way to the end, and he's getting the right people in the room, and now he's going to teach them what's most important about navigating the stuff that's going to come. While John doesn't include the account of what we just celebrated together, communion, right? The other, the other gospel writers do, and we know that they enjoyed a meal together, and it was somewhere toward the end of that meal that Jesus took the bread and the cup and, and said they symbolized his body and his blood, just like we remembered today. But it's, it's the other gospel writers show that happening after Judas departs. That was for the intimate believers that were all in with Jesus. And so John doesn't write about it because he figures John wrote his book last. The three other gospel writers included it. I don't have to, right? That's probably what's going on. And John really wants to capture this teaching that Jesus is going to give. And so it's somewhere around here. The other gospel writers tell us that they sang a hymn. The meal was over, the time on the floor around the table, and that they went out to the Mount of Olives before the next part happens. And so somewhere in there, uh, Jesus instituted the, what he called the new, the blood of the new covenant right? His body and his blood. So let's take a look at the second half of our passage. A lot of it was spent on the betrayal, the prediction of the betrayal. Now let's see where we go next. So picking up at verse 31, when he was gone, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. How many times did he just use the word glorify? Five? So Jesus talks about being glorified and how his Father's going to get the glory. It's almost like he's saying, this is it. Everything is culminating. Everything in God's plan Everything in my plan, everything that is the essence of the wonder and the beauty of who we are and what this is all about, you're going to see it next. That's kind of what the word glorify means. It's a, it's a beautiful worship word of just showing, shining the light on the essence, the true essence and beauty of, in, in our case, on God, right? We sing these songs of praise to shine a light on the truth of the magnificence of who he is. And, and he, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're about to see that 
than what's going to come down right away, at once, he says. To glorify is to shine the light on someone to make them the focus of attention and honor. So here it is. It's probably not what the disciples were thinking attention and honor would look like for Jesus, what was going to come up next, was it? But let's pick up at 33. My children, Jesus says, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Two more bombs dropped into this gathering of disciples. I'm going away, and you can't come with me. You can't follow. These are followers of Jesus, and he's saying, where I'm going next, you can't follow. And then Peter can't even grasp that, and he ignores everything else Jesus says, and, and he's just like, where are you going? Right? That was such a significant statement to him. We can't blame Peter, isn't, aren't we like that? If, if someone says something to me that startles me, I'm not going to hear the next thing they say, right? I'm a slow processor. Maybe I share that in common with Peter, but my mind is back on that other thing. And that's exactly what happens here. So Peter interrupts Jesus in a way. Jesus lays out this greatest commandment uh, of loving one another. This is like Jesus is saying, I'm going away, and this is, here's your path forward, folks. It's loving one another. And Peter can't even grasp that because he can't get beyond the fact that Jesus is going away. <laughs> and so he interrupts Jesus saying, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> it's so deeply troubling to the disciples that probably, I'm just thinking about Jesus. Jesus has just said the most important thing probably that he's going to say to them. You need to love each other. And yet he's willing for the sake of Peter and his disciples to lay that aside. And he's going to spend the whole next chapter 14 trying to help them think through what it means. Where is he going? What does it mean that they can't follow? How are they going to get to where he's going? <laughs> it's an amazing thing, and that's where we're actually going to go is that Jesus is actually going to not talk about this incredible command of loving one another again until chapter 15. 
because his disciples couldn't get over the fact that he was leaving. Isn't that love? Isn't that a loving response? To be like, I care about you enough to stop talking about this most important thing and, and, and help you understand what you're struggling with right here. That's really what's going to happen. But there's also something that creeps in, and I think it's sincere. Peter is sincere in saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you. He loved Jesus. So he makes this amazing claim, I'm, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus predicts his denial. Here's an interesting thing. We, we like to be hard on Peter because he's kind of the guy that goes first, says what he thinks. It's interesting that Matthew, when he's talking about this in chapter 26, says, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And Matthew says, and all the other disciples said the same. Have you heard that before? The other disciples were like, yeah, yeah, we'll lay our lives down for Jesus too. So what must have seemed unbelievable to confident Peter is that what would deeply wreck him a day later when it comes true, right, the very next day. In that courtyard, he denies Jesus, says, I have nothing to do with him. And Jesus washed Peter's feet, too. And every one of those other disciples who said, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll lay our lives down for Jesus, he washed their feet, too. Knowing every one of those disciples was going to fail to follow him. That's what love does. Jesus doesn't just love us when we're lovable or when we have our act together, but he keeps loving us to the end. He never gives up on us. That's why the Old Testament, the song of the Old Testament is the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. His mercies never come to an end because this is our God. And that's true of you and it's true of me. That Jesus loves us no matter what. We don't have to perform well for him, for him to still wash our feet, for him to put his arms around us and walk us through the next hard trial that we face. We're going to hear in this story as it carries out how Judas responded to his failure and how Peter responded to his failure. And that's, not, that's going to come, and we get to see that. But what I'd like to do as I conclude today is I want to just sit in this. The, the point of the passage didn't settle in on this amazing command that is the most central distinctive of believers that we love one another. 
It was just an introduction, and in part, it's because Jesus loved his disciples. And instead of saying, Peter, I just told you to love one another, and why are you asking me about where I'm going? Jesus instead understands, and he's so tender. He's so gentle. That's what love looks like. But I want to end thinking about this command to love one another because it really is the central command. You see, these disciples, everything they knew was unraveling. They were headed into hard, hard times of betrayals and denials and failures and their Savior being crucified on a cross. None of it. They're, they're just, everything is wrecked, and, and they probably thought, this is it. They hadn't really got the idea of the resurrection. And Jesus says, here's your path forward. Love one another. That's all you need to know. Love one another. So one of the questions I have is he calls this a new command. Didn't he already say the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as your, the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself? How is this a new command? He's just going back to the old command, like the biggest command. And uh, there are probably two things that are really unique about this. Number one, he says, this is your distinctive. This is what's going to make people know you're my followers, is if you have love for one another. But here's the other thing. I think the notable difference is that Jesus love your neighbor as yourself. What was his illustration? Right? Who's my neighbor? It was a really obscure person, right? That, that wasn't even someone the Jews would normally hang out with, a Samaritan. And it was a, rob, a guy who got assaulted on a highway. So this was... Loving your neighbor, Jesus is, is saying, is more about being loving towards everyone in whatever need they have. And, and so that's true, and what Jesus is doing is he's totally bringing this in and saying, you've got to get this right, right here at home, right here among yourselves, folks. You have to love each other. You are one another's neighbors, he could have added, right? So I think this is, to Jesus, it's an internal issue of utmost importance. And here's the thing. This is where it's hardest. I really believe it with all my heart. It's hardest to love the family. I see it in my own life. I saw it this week. People who lost long time ago, they're not even at Trinity anymore, lost a loved one due to COVID. I thought I should reach out to them. I never did. They reached out to me. I praise the Lord for that. But it, God just, as I'm studying this passage, I just realized the conviction of the Lord, how easy it is to forget to love the people that are the body of Christ when they're going through hard times. I fail in that regard. I failed sometimes when I'm having a hard time with someone 
the way I talk about that to them, the way I maybe write out my concerns, there's no grace. And I've had to go back and say, I'm so sorry with the way that I said that. And so God has convicted me that my life needs to be more built on his love than it is today. And that starts with today and asking God, I want to build my life on your love. Help me to do that. And the good thing is, is that Jesus is going to come back to this theme and he is going to teach us how to do it. And he's going to give us the source of power to do it. Right? He's going to tell us, oh, here's how you do it. And so we need to be paying attention. Really, really important for us. And I'm going to speak from my heart here as we close today. What would it look like for Trinity Church to have the reputation above anything else we're known for? Of there a church that loves one another. What would that look like? Is that our reputation? Are we known for other things? Or known for the opposite? I think this is what it looks like to be God's people. And it's not just us loving one another, although I think when you're bumping up against each other, it's the hardest, isn't it? In your own home, in your own church, in your small group. But it's also a love for the body worldwide. That's the whole idea of hospitality, right? Was I'm going to take this believer who's maybe a different ethnicity from me, maybe, you know, maybe he or she's a Samaritan, and I'm going to, I'm going to have them stay in my home because they need a place to stay tonight. The idea of hospitality was that. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament. You guys, <clears throat> Peter and John got it, and so did Paul and all the other writers. And I just want to read some of these uh, comments that they made in their letters to the church. And I want to just say think in your own life. You see, this is a command for us. To love one another. So John says this in 1 John. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. We love because he first loved us. John says more than that, but Peter says in 1 Peter, love one another deeply from the heart. He says, love the family of believers. He says, love one another and be compassionate and humble. These are the guys that were in the room that day. And maybe they didn't hear it that first time Jesus said it, but they got it. And oh, that we would get it too. I was in a sweet meeting this week with someone. They're new to Trinity. They've been here about two years. And their testimony above all others is, I have felt so loved here. Isn't that beautiful? Praise the Lord and way to go because guess what? The body of Christ stands like this. 
We are always welcoming people in, inviting people in, going after people. But the passage today shows us that Jesus' love is a love that sticks it out to the end. His love is for the one who he's known for three and a half, three years that betrays him. For the other guys who, who he's known for three years and fed in and they deny him. They hurt him. That's the kind of love we're called to have for each other. And I look out here and I, I can see some of you that I've been doing life with here for over 20 years. And I feel loved like that. And that's where it gets hard because you've seen every imperfection. You've seen the ways I've failed and yet you still love me. And that's what I hope you experience from me and that God can lead us together. And I've seen beautiful examples in this body of love. Let's excel all the more. In closing today, there is, um, Julie was doing this, is doing this devotional, and she read it to me yesterday, and it's called New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. And we've talked about our mission of being rooted in Jesus and reaching our worlds. And this kind of brings it together, and that's why I want to share this. But think about Paul saying, you're rooted, be, you need to, he prays for us that we would be rooted in the love of Jesus. He uses that word, that we would overflow with all the fullness of God. But here's what Paul Tripp says in his devotional from yesterday. He's talking about Psalm 118, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He says, what is the biblical story? It's the story of a God of love invading the world in a person of his son of love to draw us into his family of love. Oh, I'm sorry. To establish his kingdom of love by a radical sacrifice of love to forgive us in love and draw us into his family of love and to send us out as ambassadors of that very same love. If we want to be successful at reaching our world, we can't have a missing link of not loving one another here. Because where is God, by his grace, going to send the people? Here. It's like an adoptive family, right? We have to have this healthy place of love. And I think that God will pour out his spirit on us and bring people to us when we're ready to love them like that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us, you show us the way to love. God, that you are the one who we have to keep our eyes on, that you are the one that we need to be deeply rooted in so that love is the fruit that is produced out of our lives. And we thank you, God, for this amazing example of your love shown in this passage today towards a betrayer and a denier. Thank you, God, that your love is a love that goes 
to the end. And that for those of us who are in Christ, the end is eternal life with you in heaven forever. So God, I pray in my own life and for us as a church, Lord, would you make that more and more the distinctive of who we are and who we're known as in this community, in our relational worlds, so that you would be glorified all the more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.